Welcome to Life Beat. I'm your host, Chris Gass, Right to Life of Michigan's education coordinator. For our podcast this week, we did an interview with Dr. Catherine Mosley. Dr. Catherine Mosley serves on Right to Life of Michigan's Black Leadership Committee, uh, but she's also very well experienced as a clinical bioethicist and a board-certified pediatrician and neonatologist. She co-chairs the Pediatric Ethics Committee and directs the Ethics Consultation Services at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital. We talked to Dr. Mosley about uh, a little bit about abortion in Detroit and her work, but we definitely focused on the issue of euthanasia, which is her area of expertise as a bioethicist. Here is our interview. Please enjoy it. We're talking today with Dr. Catherine Mosley. Uh, Dr. Mosley, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So you have a lot of experience uh, as a neonatologist uh, with bioethics that we'll get into in a few minutes, but I thought we'd start by mentioning that you're part of Right to Life of Michigan's uh, Black Leadership Committee. Uh, would you like to tell people kind of uh, what the committee is for and the goals? Well, the leadership committee, I think, at least I joined the, the leadership committee I think the year before the pandemic, and we've actually been meeting over Zoom and every which way since then. But the whole purpose of the Black Leadership Committee is to increase awareness in the Black community about really the scourge of abortion and how so many of our unborn children are killed in the womb and what really happens and to come up with to try and host events or appear at events with material to let people know that this isn't just, you know, as we all know, the, the Planned Parenthood clump of tissue or not really a baby and to help people understand that there is help for them if, you know, when, if they decide to keep the pregnancy as opposed to um, killing the baby in the womb. Right. Um, and so uh, we just saw with the Michigan abortion report in, in 2020, uh, kind of, you know, the statistics of abortion in Michigan, uh, they continually trend towards, um, you know, the city of Detroit over there. Nationally, you look at abortion statistics, abortions have been declining. Um, abortions for every racial category have been declining, some faster than others. But in Michigan, we seem to have this problem of uh, the abortion numbers, especially in the black community, have continued to rise, uh, especially in the midst of the pandemic, which, um, you know, I don't think we have a great explanation for yet until we see what's happening in other states. But um, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about how the issue seems to be coming more and more ab about the city of Detroit and maybe uh, from my perspective, it's kind of almost the the hopelessness in the city of Detroit versus hope, which seems to play such an important role in women's decisions about abortion. Well, I think you, I think you've hit the nail on the head. There is a um, <clears throat> choosing abortion is an act of hopelessness. That you know, here I am, pregnant, and I have no one to help me raise this kid. 
I don't have job prospects. The father of the baby is not interested in actually be encouraging me to um, quote unquote, get rid of it, as well as family members and relatives, because this has become such an accepted and easy solution mm -hmm. to the problem. And again, if you're in a situation where you don't have a job, you have no prospect of having a job, um, you've been laid off from whatever job and no one around you really has consistent work, you look and go like, okay, how am I going to feed another mouth? I can't. So, and it's really not another mouth yet. So it's okay to kill it. And of course, with the proliferation of the um, abortion pills and now doing it by telemedicine and all of that, it just, you know, makes it really easy, unfortunately, and very sadly. Yeah. And so easy, whereas in, in, especially in the city of Detroit, uh, pregnancy can be very difficult. Um, I know that you've done some work on uh, sudden, uh, sudden infant death syndrome um, in, in the black community. And also I know that there's been an ongoing problem with maternal mortality in Detroit, which is uh, you know, women dying uh, during or shortly after uh, birth. And um, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the work you've done and just how that's kind of representative of there's just all these issues in Detroit that are not easy to fix, but they all kind of play into all these abortion decisions these individual women are making. Correct. Um, I can speak more to, to SIDS or the sudden infant death syndrome than the maternal mortality because as a pediatrician, I'm not really on that side of the, um, of the delivery room, if you will. <clears throat> but um, the reason I started attacking the sudden infant death syndrome was because I was seeing, you know, the new recommendations, you know, put the baby on the back and all of this stuff, which I'm older and my son is much older than an infant, but, you know, the recommendations before were completely opposite. You know, we put them on their tummies. We did all the, you know, we had all of this stuff. And so what we were seeing was that the incidence of SIDS was going down in both the Black and the white community, but there was still this persistent disparity with Black infants dying way more than white infants. So I wanted to figure out what the heck was going on. Mm -hmm. And so um, my research project was really designed to first figure out what were the what were the operative reasons. And basically it came down to who does the mom trust? A pediatrician who generally is white because you know the the number of black physicians is still vanishingly small. The number of black pediatricians, even in the city of Detroit, is vanishingly small. And many of them are young and may not have their own children. So they're telling these young women, do something that seems counterintuitive, which is put your baby on the back, versus their mother and grandmother who has raised whatever, who are saying, that's crazy, the baby will choke. So that was number one. Mm -hmm. um, number two was also, where does the baby sleep? I had long talks with what I call, the person I call sort of the CS signers, because for every 
death, every unexplained infant death, they send out a sort of a forensic nurse to see mm. what happened. And a lot of them, you know, the babies are sleeping, not, you know, not in a crib, like, you know, we generally think of, but they're sleeping maybe in a drawer. They're sleeping in the bed with the mom. They're sleeping because one of the messages that has been given, which I've, which didn't work for drugs, which is sort of the just say no, never, 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 never put your baby on their back because they could die. Well, we know that, you know, many people will put their baby on their stomach and lo and behold, after one night, they probably didn't die. So the, the, the confidence in that advice goes down because we do know that babies do sleep better and stay asleep longer on their stomachs. And so you've got likely a single mother or at least one who may be in a multi-generational household is what we found that um, I need to keep this baby quiet, not just for my sleep, but for maybe my grandfather or my mom or somebody else and putting them on the back isn't just gonna cut it. Mm so interestingly what we found in our focus groups was that they wanted to hear from someone who had lost their baby so we made we actually made videos showing them the right way to to sleep with the interview and we 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 didn't get someone obviously who had lost a baby but we found an actress who was just absolutely marvelous and we created a script that um, we ran by the CSI nurse and said, you know, is this pretty typical? And so it seemed to, it seemed to affect people. Unfortunately, because of other issues with Detroit, we had a really hard time getting people to return the, you know, to, to answer the, the interviewers when they would call and so forth. Because you know, mail delivery wasn't the best, even though we sent a priority mail. It was, it was very, it was much more complicated than it would have been had we done it, you know, like in Bloomfield Hills. But of course, they, we weren't interested in the white people in Bloomfield Hills because pretty much they in our in our initial ones they were all sleeping on their back. So we needed to figure out what was going on with these young women. Mm-hmm. that was keeping them. And it's mainly, it was primarily the trust. My mom says, do it this way. This doctor who keeps throwing studies at me, but she doesn't have any kids, tells me that way. Who am I going to believe? Right. So. I think that's a great segue kind of into our main topic, um, which we'll talk about, you know, bioethics, medical ethics, uh, euthanasia. I think um, a lot of people, maybe now more so in the pandemic, but a, a lot of people don't realize that there are many people who just have no trust in the medical advice they're given. Um, and, for, and from what I understand, and you're looking at, you know, vaccination rates between different racial groups, that uh, there are a lot of people who just, for good reason, um, have very little trust in in the medical system and you think about um i think people don't realize things like the uh the tuskegee syphilis experiment you know those things are still in in living memory where people have 
for whatever reason, experienced something bad um, when it comes to uh, treatments or research. And, and so when you deal with issues like end of life topics, the trust that is so critical between what the doctor is saying, what the family's hearing, what the patient wants, it seems to me, would you agree that the, there's, especially in certain communities, that trust is just not there? Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, so you need to realize that the civil rights legislation was passed in 1965. That's not that long ago, and it is in the living memory of many people alive today. Because prior to that, and even after that, Black people weren't allowed in certain hospitals, even in the city of Detroit, or like at Henry Ford Hospital, they had a, um, an M unit, which is sort of the basement, which is where they put the African-American patients. That was one of the reasons why back, I think it was in the 40s, don't, I'm, I'm not sure if the, the exact date, but Black physicians in Detroit got together and opened their own hospitals because they couldn't get privileges at the white hospitals at Henry Ford and so forth. And um, so there are people living today who remember that. And so all of a sudden, and this is, this was my um, issue. I was the um, system ethicist at Henry Ford for the Henry Ford health system for a while. And I just kept running into the same problem, mostly with African-American patients, we would get consulted for the quote unquote unreasonable patient. Mm -hmm. And what was happening was, or the unreasonable family because they wanted to, and uh, generally appropriately so withdraw like, cause life support was not helping. This was someone who had multi-organ system failure. And really the only choice was, do you want to die with all these machines on you? or we want to die with the machines off of you surrounded by your family, because we have done all that we can do and there's literally nothing else that is left and anything else that we might be doing would actually maybe be harmful or at least disrespectful. And the families would say no. And what it turned out to be was that for the most part that they had felt completely disrespected during their loved one's hospital stay. So for example, they would have come in and found their loved one with maybe the bed unchanged and they couldn't get a nurse to come in and take care of it. Or they wanted to talk to the doctors and the doctors weren't take care, taking care of them while they would see the doctors talking to the non-African-American or white families, which may have something, you know, for a totally different reason, but you, you get that perception. It's like, why are, why are we being ignored over here? Mm. So now when all of a sudden it comes that you wanna stop treatment, now you come and talk to us. No, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't believe you. You just wanna get rid of them because we have seen over the years you know, going all the way back to slavery times, the um, many of the surgical procedures, gynecologic surgical procedures 
that did for like um, fistulas between the bladder and the vagina. But um, this, this um, and I can't remember his name, but he has a statue in New York City that people have been complaining about and taking it down. He used this one slave who had this fistula and he experimented literally with, you know, sewing her up and then it would rip out and then she would sew and he would, you know, bribe her with um, some kind of opium or whatever and got her addicted so that she would keep agreeing to, you know, do this operation like a slave can agree to stuff, right? And say mm -hmm. no. But start, I mean, going back to that point, um, there's a great book by Harriet Washington called Medical Apartheid, which documents all of this of how our bodies have been used basically to either entertain or be sources of experimentation for Europeans and white Americans. So people are suspicious. They don't, they don't trust the vaccines, sadly, just fall into that of like, okay, why are you telling me to do this? What is this going to do? And then it's fallen into this whole political thing as well. But um, there is good reason to distrust. I remember being at a ethics conference and one of the um, pediatric anesthetist who was also an ICU doc was talking about this distrust and he was talking to a mother about oh, probably a teenage son who was basically, I guess the euphemism, sort of not doing well mm -hmm. and was wanted to talk about, you know, limiting some of the treatment because it wasn't helping. And the mom looked at him and said, you have ignored him his entire life. He didn't get anything. You're going to give him everything now. Yeah, it uh, all this, all these situations that cause people to distrust and in these end of life situations, you know, that they're very difficult. Um, you have the, the interests of the hospital, the doctors, the patients. Ideally, these are all the same interest, but um, sometimes they're not. And, you know, we're dealing with situations that are hard to be, I guess you could say, you know, different experience for everyone and people have different desires. Some want to um, try more last ditch efforts and more low uh, percentage treatments. Others are more content to um, stop treatment and it depends on age. And it's just hard for people to really come into these situations and often they don't plan ahead or think about the stuff in advance, which is, which is not a good situation to be in. But what are some kind of tips for people who may be listening, uh, who maybe they have this distrust or they haven't really thought about end of life issues? What's something that they should really be thinking about um, before they find themselves or their family members in those situations? I think the most important thing is to talk to your family and tell them what you want or what you don't want. Because one of the most frustrating situations is when you have multiple family members 
who can't agree. And even though legally there is a list of, you know, first you go to the wife, then you go to the yada yada. But um, if they can't agree, because you really, ideally, you want the death of the person to be a, and I'll put this in scare quotes, a good experience, not just for the person who's dying, but also for the family, something that they are not going to go home and talk about. If only we had done this, if the doctors hadn't done that, you want them to feel like we did the right thing because the person's going to be dead either way. And when we look at it about, I mean, that sounds callous and cruel, but if you're the person lying in the bed, you're going to be, if you're saying you're dead, you're going to be dead either way. And whether it is this day or three days, and I don't know too many people who would say that, okay, if my husband, wife, son, daughter, whatever, is uncomfortable with me dying today, go ahead and do a little bit more so that they can get peace. And I'll hang on another day because ultimately I'm going to be dead. So as a medical person, however, we tend to think only of the person lying in the bed, not of the entire family and start to protect them. So it's important that your family, you talk about what you want or don't want with the family and especially the person that you have designated to make decisions for you when you can't make decisions. And it's really important that you do that formally. Mm. You know, tell your husband, tell your wife, tell your brothers, whoever, I want you to do this. Mm-hmm. So that when, you know, if God forbid something happened, especially unexpectedly, because doctors were supposed to talk about that stuff with their patients, but it's hard for us too, because we are not, we don't want our patients to die either. We are not trained to like, oh, well, they're going to die. No, we're trained to save life and to have a patient die on us, even if it's expected, whatever, still feels like a failure. Like, could I have done something else? Should I have done, did I miss something that could have given them maybe another week or month of of useful life? So it's on both ends. But if you know, it's like, no, mom never would have wanted X, Y, or Z. Or no, mom really wants to go until, and and make an endpoint. But um, talking and talk to your doctor, even though in this day and age, knowing who your doctor is once you go in the hospital is a crapshoot because there are so many. Yeah. So on top of this already difficult issue of end of life care, um, now we're adding this new layer in a lot of states. Um, I know that you've been a doctor. you were a doctor through the 90s in Michigan when we were dealing with uh, Jack Kevorkian and trying to legal, uh, legalize assisted suicide. And we see in other states and countries assisted suicide or outright euthanasia being legalized. And then you're bringing a whole new level 
on top of these already difficult situations where um, vulnerable people, be it, you know, be it their doctor or the insurance company, or as we often see their own family members typically seem to be the ones pressuring them um, to just end it all right now. Um, whether or not now you, that always starts with, you know, oh, you it seems you probably have six months to live and, and quickly expands to if you're not feeling well, um, if you just don't feel like you're belong, if you feel like you're being a burden, um, what can we do as people to kind of push back against this culture of euthanasia that seems to be growing around the country? Excellent question. I think the, the most important thing is to, and again, I'm a pediatrician, so you will, which I always find totally ironic that I spend a lot of time talking about adult end of life when I'm a pediatrician, but that's a, that's neither here nor there. I think the, the, the most important thing is to, in advance, before compassionate choices or anything gets to your state, and we have been lucky it's not here in Michigan yet, is to really inoculate the population with the truth. So truth number one is physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia are very different than hospice care and palliative care mm -hmm. because people get confused about that all the time and turn down things that could actually help them have a really nice end of lifetime like hospice and palliative care, fearing that, oh, that means they're going to give up on me. Physician-assisted suicide has just grown by leaps and bounds and is totally frightening to me because basically it says that, because it always starts out very tight, like, oh, only if you have six months to live. And like, who knows that? I have given, I've, I have stopped before I retire. Do, doing that because you never know because you always end up being wrong. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had one mother whose child had, I think it was trisomy 18. And the child was like six months old or eight months old and it was in the hospital because it had a little bit of pneumonia. And she took me aside and she says, you know, your doctors need to learn because everybody prepared me when the baby was born that the baby was gonna die. So I gave away all the infant clothes. We repainted the nursery. We gave away the crib and everything. And then she lived and nobody prepared me the fact that, for the fact that she could live. So we don't know. We don't know what the, but you know, physician assisted suicide starts out with this, oh, six months terminal disease. And you go to your doc, you go to a doctor and make a request, and then you got to wait a month or something like that and make the same request. So it's a stable request. That's how it starts. And then they and then because this is the United States, you can't really limit it to a term. So what is a terminal disease? So as a terminal disease, if I am on dialysis and I just decide to stop dialysis. Well, that gives me a terminal disease. 
Or if I have diabetes and I'm tired of taking my insulin, I can just stop taking my insulin. Now I have a terminal disease because it will kill me. So it starts morphing. And then it's like, well, wait, why does it have to be only over 21? What about, what about mature minors? What about teenagers? They can make their own decisions about abortion. They can make their own decisions about contraception. So shouldn't they be able to make their own? So it starts morphing. But the way the laws are written, which are really scary, is that one, the cause of death of, as physician-assisted suicide does not go on the death certificate. So there is no way to keep track of how many people actually die. All you know, all you possibly can know is how many people got a prescription, but not how many people actually took it and died. Number two, the doctor doesn't have to be there when you take the medication, but other people can be there to quote unquote, help you, mm -hmm. including people who might benefit from your death. Um, so for example, you know, somebody, if you had a feeding tube, somebody could just say, oh, well, I'll just put this down the feeding tube for you. You really want to die. I could tell my mother wanted to die. So you've got, you've got all of these now. Our neighbors to the north in Canada have legalized straight out euthanasia because they talk to the people in um, what Washington State mm -hmm. and Oregon and was discovering because you, in order to kill yourself, you have to take a lot of pills. And mm -hmm. apparently a lot of people can't swallow them all and end up throwing them out or not, not taking enough and end up in a coma. So they, you know, got heaven forbid, they don't die. So Canada said, well, shoot, let's avoid this completely. We will legalize euthanasia, meaning you go to the drugstore with a prescription for um, basically what they use to, to do capital punishment with, to do lethal injection. You take it to your doctor and he injects you and you're gone. Hmm. Now, in the States where this is legal, obviously this is great advantage for the insurance companies. It's like, hmm. wait, am I going to pay for continued cancer chemotherapy, which can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars? Or am I going to pay for 100 oxycodone? Mm -hmm. Wait, wait, which caused more? So, and we have, we have seen that happen. There have been reports. So this is not benign. Should fight against this. The other part of it is, is what happens to our disabled or vulnerable poor populations who don't, who already don't have a lot of options with regard to health care, have a hard time getting to health care. Um, you know, well, you know what, you're really, you're really having a hard time getting around in that wheelchair. Maybe be better off if you died. And what does it say to our teenagers? You know, it's like, why is this, you know, um, so many of them are committing suicide, especially during the pandemic. But, you know, I've had them in my office that, you know, 
boyfriend or girlfriend X has broken up with me and my life is no longer worth living. Now, the rest of us who are older know that, yeah, it'll be fine. But at that moment, you know, like, well, wait, you said your life wasn't worth living because you had disease X. Why is that different? And you really can't come up with a good argument if it's suicide is okay in situation A, then it should be okay in situation B because it's all personal perception. You don't have to have the permission of your family or friends. It, it just, it's, it is just so ripe for abuse. And in fact, the reason I got involved in this was because I was on the American Medical Association's Council for Ethical and Judicial Affairs, which writes and updates the Code of Medical Ethics. So the medical societies of Oregon and um, Washington State came to the AMA and said, you need to change this opinion that prohibits physicians from doing physician-assisted suicide. So we looked at it and we talked about it. We, we discussed it. We, we looked at the reasons why initially they said no. And it's like, okay, all the way back, to Hippocrates, this has not been something that physicians do. And there was less availability of things to palliate and to make patients better. Why the heck are we doing this now when we have all this legion of medications and interventions? Mm -hmm. But what it came down to was basically nothing really had changed from the initial pronouncement that it was dangerous, and targeted really the vulnerable. It was, it was bad for the physician-patient relationship because really, how can you feel about going to your physician and talking about how badly you feel that you're doing if you think he's gonna turn, or he or she is gonna turn around and go, oh, well, I can prescribe you some pills and you can kill yourself if you would like. It just, it, we just decided this was, this was still a bad idea. And so we didn't change the opinion. And, and that's been so critical because we've seen in states where they have legalized euthanasia or assisted suicide, it's often those state medical societies that have either endorsed it or gone uh, neutral that have really uh, led to some of those changes being made. So uh, Dr. Mosley, we thank you so much for being a pro-life voice and all of your work uh, helping your patients. And uh, thank you so much for joining us and hope you have a wonderful weekend. Well, same to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our interview with Dr. Catherine Mosley. For more information about the topics that we discussed, you can go to our website, www.rtl.org. Join us next week for a regular episode of LifeBeat. Have a wonderful weekend.